0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social Index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com/allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com/alan all of us. It's about predicting where the consumer
1: is going and getting half of it right.
0: One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got a special treat with Davis Smith, who's the founder and CEO of Cotopaxi. Cotopaxi is a benefit corporation, or B Corp, and an outdoor gear company with a humanitarian mission at its core. Davis is a serial entrepreneur, having started and sold several different businesses. Today on the show, we're going to go in-depth on his purpose and passion that drives what Cotopaxi does today and how their purpose is woven through literally every single function of the company. We'll also talk about the future of marketing and the combination of online and offline channels for an omni-channel effect if you're distributing products and trying to maintain a direct-to-consumer brand, and much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Well Davis, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Well, I we'll get into Codopaxi and many things related, but I thought we could start this interview out a little bit about you as a person. And I love getting to know the people that I'm interviewing and I'd love to know, you know, is there an experience in your past that defines or makes up who you've become today?
1: Yeah. I think there's maybe more than most people, I think my childhood really ended up shaping, you know, my direction in life. And that's largely because I had a really kind of a unique childhood. My family left the United States when I was 4 years old, and we ended up moving to the developing world. And so I ended up spending my entire childhood and some of my teenage years living in countries that are really kind of known for their poverty. You know, those experiences really shaped me. My very first memory as a child, one of my very first memories was right when my family had moved to the Dominican Republic. And we were driving down the road and I I remember looking out the window of my car and seeing my parents' car and seeing children that were my age, that were three or four years old, that were standing on the sides of the street completely naked. And it was totally shocking to me as a four-year-old. And from those very early years, I really started identifying that I was really lucky. I wasn't better than these other kids. I wasn't more deserving, certainly but for some reason I had opportunity that they didn't. And so from that young age, I've always wanted to find a way that I could try to make a difference in the world, try to make the lives of some of these people a little bit better.
0: Well, I know that's a fantastic story. And I I know we're going to talk a lot more about that as it relates to the business that you've created as well. What fuels you day to day? What drives you to get up every morning and and come back to the business?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think it's really that, deep-seated feeling of responsibility that I have. I could go on, I could probably talk this entire time about just stories and experiences I've had with people that have inspired me in the developing world and why I want to do what I'm doing. But it really comes down to, you know, specific people that I think of. There was a, a little boy that I met in Peru when I was in college. I went and did an internship for a non-profit there. It was an unpaid internship just a really amazing experience. And there was a little boy I met in the streets named Edgar and a nine-year-old boy who shined shoes. And I met him actually, I was eating lunch on a park bench and a bunch of little kids ran up to me and tried to sell me things. And having grown up in Latin America, I immediately just connected with these little kids and joked around with them. And (laughs) little Edgar, you know, he sat next to me on his shoe shining kit. And when all the other kids left, he stayed there. And I started wondering why he was still there. And I ended up offering him my food. And Just the way he ate it shocked me. I'd never seen somebody eat like this. And that night, as I was eating dinner, I thought, you know, I'm going to go look for Edgar again. And I brought some of my dinner into the main plaza and found him straight away. And he took this food and he started sharing it with all of his little friends. And they were eating it with their hands. And it just became a daily ritual for me, looking for Edgar. And my last night in Cusco... Before I left, I was walking down the street close to midnight, and I stumbled upon Edgar sleeping in the street with his sweater pulled over his knees trying to stay warm. And uh, I woke him up and asked him why he was on the streets. And he told me that someone had stolen his shoe shining kit, and he was too afraid to go home. Oh. And you know, he was the one supporting his family. His dad had an alcohol problem. His mom depended on him to really kind of support them. And it was just heartbreaking to me. I gave him the little cash that I had, which wasn't very much at all. And that night, I just could hardly sleep worrying about this little boy. And the next day, I got on a bus to leave Cusco. And as it went through the main plaza, I looked out the window and I saw Edgar and he saw me. And we had just enough time where I slid open the window of this bus and he ran next to the window waving goodbye. And he bought this big bag of candy and he was now selling that candy in the streets. And it was really that experience. I was on that bus, like I made a commitment to myself that I was gonna find a way, I was gonna dedicate my life to finding a way to be of use to others and to be able to help people like Edgar. You know, that was in two thousand one. I can honestly say I thought about Edgar every single day since that time. And so that's really what drives me. That's what wakes me up. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking of him, I'm thinking of these other faces and these people that I've met and known. And that's what really drives me to try to build something meaningful here that can make an impact.
0: Wow, what an unbelievable spirit, both in yourself as well as in this little boy, Edgar, who I'm sure is no longer a little boy. And there's an interesting component to that as well that I'm gonna pull out just, I realize it's self-serving, but he's an entrepreneur himself, carrying around the shoe shining kit and then ultimately buying and reselling candy. You're a serial entrepreneur Where did you catch that entrepreneurial
1: bug? It's a great question. It wasn't something that I was like necessarily born with. Some entrepreneurs I know that talk about how from the time they were a little kid, they knew they were going to be entrepreneurs. You know, they were always setting up lemonade stands or whatever. That wasn't really me. I can look back and I I remember times I had a, a best friend and I remember telling him, hey, you know, when we grow up we should start an accounting firm together like we both had thought maybe about being accountants which i look now and think oh my gosh i didn't even know what an accountant does cuz that sounds like the <laughs> like something <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily enjoy but there were some moments where i kind of saw, oh you know i was, maybe was thinking entrepreneurially but it really came down to an experience I, I when i was just starting college i'd been a missionary for 2 years in bolivia for my church and when i was 19 until I was 21. And Bolivia is one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. I lived in some communities that made about $200 a year. So they live in extreme poverty. I really just fell in love with these people. They opened up a piece of my heart that I didn't even know existed before. And when I came home, it was hard. I remember pulling into my my parents' driveway after these two years and just thinking, I don't deserve this. I was reading a, a local paper shortly after I got back at my parents' home. And there was a story about a man named Steve Gibson, this entrepreneur who had sold his business, and he and his wife ended up moving to the Philippines to teach entrepreneurship um, to help Filipinos pull themselves out of poverty. And they would teach about 25 people at a time. They lived in residence in this home that this couple had bought. And for those two months, they basically gave him a crash course on how to start their own businesses. and they had this amazing success rate where like 80% of graduates even years later were still running their own small businesses and it was just so inspiring to me. I actually cut out this article and I put it in the front cover of my binder at school and so I, I carried this around university for like three and a half years and I'd see the article every day, it would inspire me every day to like think about what talents I had and maybe how I could use those to help others and at the time I really wasn't thinking about entrepreneurship, I was just thinking about how do I identify what I'm good at so that I can do something of my own. and But towards the end of my time at at BYU at at school, I ended up hearing about a social impact conference on a Saturday. So I went back on campus on the weekend and I was in between some different sessions uh, walking down the hallway and I saw Steve Gibson. The guy from this article was like (laughs) walking down the hallway and I see him getting into an elevator and it's like, oh my gosh, this is the man. This is the man that's like inspired me every day. So I literally ran down the hall and stuck my arm in the elevator door to keep it from closing and then jumped in. And you know, he was stuck. He had to talk to me and this guy's, you know, multimillionaire. He's changed thousands of lives. I'm a student. I'm a nobody. And he's acting so flattered that I recognized him. And it was just a really special moment for me. And, you know, he asked me if I'd be interested in meeting him in his office in a couple of weeks. So I set up an appointment and I prepared literally for two weeks I just prepared a pitch. And I I practiced (laughs) over and over again. And the pitch was to convince him to let me come work for him. And I was gonna help him I put together an idea of helping him expand his program from the Philippines to Latin America where I'd grown up. And, you know, at the end of this little pitch, you know, he's smiling and nodding the whole time. And I'm thinking, man, I'm nailing this. I think this (laughs) might work. And at the end, he just goes, Davis, I love how passionate you are about this. But what I see in you is that you would be a fantastic entrepreneur and you should go start your own business. And 10 or 20 years down the road, you can go find your own way of making an impact in the world. And so, I left that office just beaming, thinking, you know what, Steve Gibson idol, says that I would be a great entrepreneur. The reality is looking back now, I'm sure Steve told that to everybody, but <laughs> it felt special at the time for me. So you know, a few months later, I started my first business. And it's really that person, Steve Gibson, that really kind of helped me see something in myself that maybe I wouldn't have seen otherwise.
0: Right. You've made this connection between doing good with the mechanism of business. Was it the article that you read that put those two things together? Or have you just kind of put those together over time? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, I know. It's a great question. I kind of look back myself and try to think, you know, what was kind of the genesis of that concept? And I don't fully know, but I do know that when Steve encouraged me to go do something, I tested a bunch of different ideas before I landed on my first business. And two of those early ideas were actually ideas where I built a social mission into the business. And neither of those ideas ended up working. Those businesses failed. I mean, very early concepts, but they they didn't get traction in the way I knew they needed to. And so I kind of moved away and moved to something else. But... I kind of had that idea early, and I'm not, again, I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but the beautiful thing is that over the last, you know, I then spent 10 years building two different businesses. And during that time period, I I saw great examples of companies that figured out ways to marry doing good and building a great business. Brands like Tom Shoes, brands like Warby Parker, and others, where I was like, wow, that's the way to do it. That's how you can have impact and still build something. And do it sustainably because the business is creating profits that allow you to continue to do good without having to go beg someone else for money So, you know, I certainly have seen inspiration from other companies that have helped me in the direction that I'm headed now
0: That's great. You're the CEO and founder of Cotopaxi Which is described as an outdoor gear and apparel manufacturer But the more I read the more we've discussed just doesn't seem to do the company justice How do you describe what your company does?
1: Yeah we do indeed sell outdoor gear you know we sell packs and sleeping bags and tents and jackets but you know we're not really an outdoor gear company we're a do-good company we're a company that does good and we just happen to do that through selling product and also experiences we have these 24-hour adventure races called Questivals, and you know we'll have a couple hundred thousand people by the end of next year that will have participated in in one of these Questival events so I instead see us we're a brand. We're a brand that's about inspiring people to go out and do good. A brand that believes that capitalism can be a force for good in the world. A brand that believes that businesses need to look beyond their bottom lines to try to find ways they can impact their communities and, and people around the world. So yeah, we happen to sell outdoor gear as part of that mission and that vision. But yeah, definitely I see ourselves as something much bigger for sure.
0: Well, on this notion of capitalism you know, and using it for good, I recently saw you on the TEDx video for Salt Lake City, which is, is capitalism saving or destroying us? And I'd love if you could share your viewpoint on capitalism as a force for good. So what do you mean by that? Yeah.
1: Capitalism is an interesting thing because it's not very clear, right? I mean, there's right. elements when you look at capitalism, and think, man, that's really ugly. That's like a really bad thing. And then there's other times when you look and think, wow, this has worked in a way that nothing has ever worked ever in history of the world. And in that TED Talk, I talked about how in, in 1820, less than 200 years ago, 94% of the world lived in poverty. That is just such a different world than we live in today. For the whole of human history, most humans have just lived in absolute poverty, barely having enough to eat, not having shelter. It wasn't until the last few hundred years where we've seen that change. And when I was born in 1978, about half the world lived in extreme poverty, which is considered anything under today's equivalent of $1.90 a day. And in 1990, it was around 20%, just under 20%. And then last year, for the first time in human history, less than 10% of the world lived in extreme poverty. I mean, this is a tremendous shift. And, like, why has that happened? Well, there's a lot of factors. And it's, it, you can't just say it's because of one thing. But certainly capitalism has changed the world. And we look at India and China. Since I was in high school, a billion people have been lifted out of poverty and largely because of capitalism. It's the opening of markets in these large economies like and China that have, have transformed those countries. And so capitalism can be a tremendous force for good. At the same time, it can be incredibly destructive. And I talk a little bit about the damage that we do to the earth through capitalism and the damage has been done to people. Sometimes the extremely poor can just be completely forgotten and left behind in, in an effort to maximize profits. And that's where I think the future of capitalism is evolving. It's changing, where we're starting to recognize that, hey, capitalism is great. There's some great things about it, but there's also some really big negatives that we have to figure out how to address. And that's what I'm hoping Cotopaxi can start moving down that path.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about you know the different elements that you've built into Cotopaxi. Because as we talked before, I was just amazed. It, it literally is almost, I think, everything that you do from what you would expect from you know giving a a percentage of profits to good causes to sourcing to teaching to hiring i mean could you elaborate on just a few of those at least
1: yeah so one thing i really felt strongly about was i wanted to build our do good mission into every aspect of our brand i knew of a lot of companies that had a very simplistic model of impact which is maybe a buy one give one model or something similar where you buy a pair of shoes and then we give a pair of shoes to somebody.
0: Right. Tom Shoes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And to be fair, Tom Shoes has evolved their giving strategy tremendously mm-hmm. over the last few years and they've learned a lot. And frankly, I think they've done an amazing job of teaching other businesses, uh, you know, how to do good in the right way. But I really felt like we need to build this a much more complex giving strategy and needed to be very holistic and needed to tackle the roots of problems, not just create band-aids. Instead of just selling, you know, giving away a backpack for every backpack we sell, it was, it was like, okay, how do we have the most impact per dollar? And so we created a giving strategy where we donate a percentage of all of our revenues to support some different initiatives, three different pillars that focus on education, healthcare, and livelihoods. These are the three pillars that we believe are kind of inextricably tied to poverty alleviation. So, you know, we focus on grant giving in these three pillars in some of the poorest countries in the world. Places where a few dollars can literally change someone's life or save a life. Um, these are places in communities where people are dying from dirty water or dying because a mosquito carrying a disease bit them. Or where maybe a girl stops going to school because she started her period. Right. Things that just really shouldn't be happening in 2017. So... There's that component. But then beyond that, I felt like we could do more. I felt like we had a responsibility to go inspire other people. And so we created the Questables, these 24-hour races where we get every race. We have thousands of people that go. You know, this year we have 60 events across the U.S. and Canada. Every event has up to $5,000 donated to local or global nonprofits supporting different issues. We have thousands of hours of community service done at every Questable. These are things that, as a business, they don't cost us anything. All we're doing is asking others to go out and do good with us. And that's been uh, tremendously effective. We also have a bunch of initiatives internally where we use skills-based volunteerism to help, where we we have some of the coders on our team that created a coding class for refugees, where they teach a 20-week class to refugees that have been resettled here. And once they graduate, we help them get internships at local companies, or they can get a scholarship at the local community college to continue their education we have a program where if you order anything from our website, you actually get a handwritten thank you card that's written by a refugee. And we have a program here where we give refugees that have been resettled their very first jobs. And we teach them basic job skills and they can earn supplemental income for their families. So what we found too, is like, as we start building these do good pieces into every little aspect of our business, it adds to the authenticity, you know, behind the brand and people want to support us more. And then it allows us to go inject some of that money back into these communities actually one last thing that i forgot to mention was our supply chain Mm -hmm. so our purchasing power is a big way we do impact so we work with communities in bolivia
0: selling a little or a lot
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, this year we're ordering several hundred thousand pounds of llama wool from some of these poorest communities there creating livelihoods and jobs. There's a number of initiatives that we have with our supply chain as well, but that's another way we can have tremendous impact. That's not necessarily just as simple as donating profits.
0: Right. You're not alone in the outdoor gear category in terms of corporate social responsibility, but why tackle poverty versus maybe what would be expected, conservation or the environment? Yeah, great question. The beautiful thing about the outdoor industry is that so many people in
1: this space care deeply, right? And so That's one of the reasons I chose the outdoor industry was I I believed that I wanted to build a company that could do good. And as I kind of looked at all these different opportunities, I thought, you know, people that love the outdoors, they've connected with something bigger than themselves and they'll identify with this mission. And I looked at these other brands and there's a ton of amazing brands that really have focused on doing good, primarily focused around the environment and conservation. And as someone that loves the outdoors, of course, I resonate with that mission. I love the environment and I want to protect it. At the same time, that's not where my real deep passion lies. My passion has always lied with people. And I just didn't see any brand that really focused on people that was at the core of their brand. And so that's where I felt like we could do something different than it had ever been done by building people into the core of everything that we do and the decisions that we make. And so it's been fun to be in this space and to do something, you know, a little bit differently than what everyone
0: else has been doing. Right. Well, so you're three years in, where is the business today?
1: Yeah. So we are three years in, which has been really fun. It's been a really just wild ride. We've raised about $24 million in venture capital from Silicon Valley and New York from just phenomenal world-class investors and also entrepreneurs that, you know, so the founders and, and CEOs behind brands like Warby Parker and Lululemon and Harry's and Stance and a bunch of other Bonobos and a bunch of other amazing companies. You know, these founders have gotten behind what we're building. And, that's been great, you know the team is close to seventy people now, so yeah i mean it's I'd say it's still very early days for us. We're still in listening and learning mode from our customers, but I think what we've done is we've been able to very quickly build a brand that's resonated with consumers, and you know I think we're on a path that we're aiming to become the next big outdoor brand. We believe we can be as bigger or bigger than Patagonia. This is a very crowded space, there's room for a lot of great brands, and so we're really excited about the future that we think about with, with customers as well as that we don't necessarily have to go take a customer away from some other outdoor brand. Our vision is that we can expand the pie. Mm-hmm. You know, with these festivals specifically, we get thousands and thousands of young millennials that are out experiencing the outdoors for the first time. And so we want to grow this market by helping more people experience the outdoors and understand why it's important. So that's another fun element.
0: Well, I know we talked about one of your best-selling products, the Dia bag, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, but could you share the story about that bag? Because I think the story of that one bag kind of highlights even more about what you're about, your mission, and what you're trying to achieve.
1: Yeah, the Dia is definitely one of my favorite products, and what makes it so cool is, so we in our pack factory, where we were manufacturing or are manufacturing all of our bags, first of all, it's just an amazing place. I mean, they manufacture for all the big brands that everyone knows of. And they treat people right. People are paid fairly. And the average sewer has been in this factory 11 and a half years. They love their jobs. They love what they do. At the same time, one of the problems I saw was that these sewers had no voice. They were simply told what to sew, and then they had to sew it. And they were told what to sew by people like us and they were the true craftsmen the true artisans and i just felt like wow that needs to change like how do we give a voice to these unsung heroes of the outdoor industry the people that actually make our gear the second problem that we saw was there was a ton of waste a lot of waste that's created in the manufacturing process and so we came up with an idea of allowing the sewers to have creative control over bags and so we gave them a handful of different patterns and then we told them, Hey, you guys can sew the bags yourselves. You can choose any colors and any materials you want. Use the remnant materials. And there's only one rule, which is to make no bag alike. And it was crazy. I mean, they came up that we only did like 500 of these to start and they loved it. I mean, they were just obsessed with it. You could see the personality of every sewer in their stack of bags. And it was just a really fun project. And we started selling them online and within a few days they were sold out and we're like okay like this is really fun like this product resonates with customers people like this idea of having a bag that's unique to them and that someone actually designed a real human i mean one of the things i think we forget is that everything that we're using like the clothes that we're wearing right now our pants our shirts our jackets these were all sewn by a human being they were made by a person these weren't just like spit out by some machine a person touched this and made it and they put their care and passion into it. And so, kind of connecting, that's one of the things that I really love about Cotopaxi is our ability to connect people and stories from around the world to consumers, the end user that's actually using the product. There's a story behind the product they're using.
0: That's awesome. Well, do you have any new products on the horizon you'd like to share?
1: Well, we just launched a really cool sock. It's called the Libre Sock and it's made of llama wool. Again, working with these communities in Bolivia. And it's a really beautiful product. We've actually partnered up with Wigwam, which is a 110-year-old sock company here in the U.S.
0: Oh, yeah. 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 I've had my fair pair of uh, Wigwam socks. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. They were, like, my favorite pair of socks when I was, like, 18. They were Wigwam socks, and I loved going hiking in those. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so... That's been a fun project. You know, we worked with these communities in Bolivia. They created all the yarns. And then we sent those yarns to Wigwam. Wigwam has now made these beautiful socks, just all sorts of funky colors and just really just a great product and and a product that's empowering these communities that I care a lot about. So that's a really fun project. That's on Indiegogo right now. It's one of the crowdfunding platforms.
0: Awesome. Awesome. If you send me a link, we'll put it in the show notes for sure. Oh, cool didn't talk about this, but I'd love to ask you this question, which is, you know, your channels to market, you talked about Questivals, and that's more of an experiential and community building. And my assumption is you're also probably able to sell some product through there, but I know you're in retail, you're online. How are you thinking about the channels that you go to market in?
1: Yeah. So we're a primarily direct consumer brand what they call a digitally native vertical brand. And what that means is we were born online digitally. We're vertically integrated, meaning that we're designing and manufacturing the product ourselves and then selling it direct to consumer. So that's how we started is you know, selling direct to consumer largely online, also through our offline events. You know, we did in the last year open up a physical retail store in Salt Lake City where we're based. It's connected to our office building. We're in kind of a really cool historic building in downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, building built in the 1800s. And the ground floor is our physical store. And then kind of the second floor mezzanine level and the floor above that are, are our offices. And so we have this physical store. And then we're now just barely starting to sell also through some retailers as well. So retailers like REI and Nordstrom are starting to sell the product and a lot of specialty reta- outdoor retailers as well. So that's an important, this omnichannel channel strategy of, of selling through these different channels is important to us. But we always do want to be a primarily direct consumer brand because that's where we feel like we have the best touch point with our customers. We get to understand what they care about, what they want, and we can design around them. So that's important
0: to us. Right. And that's, to your point, the strongest connection you can have to your customer base is direct. Absolutely. So you talked about this a little bit already, but what your aspirations for the company, I know you, you said the next big outdoor brand before. What does that look like to you? For me, I'd say it looks like a few things. Number one, I
1: want to be kind of the hometown hero of Salt Lake City or of Utah. I want to be the company that everyone kind of looks at and says, we're proud of this company that's based here, that was built here in Salt Lake, that represents values that we align with. That's something that drives me. I care about representing this community. I grew up all over, but I I feel a certain connection to the city of Salt Lake. That's the access to the outdoors, a community that cares about giving. It's the most generous state in the country as far as dollars given mm-hmm. per capita and also time donated per capita. This is a community that cares about giving. And so I want to build a brand that's globally recognized as a brand that has looked beyond their bottom line. I want to be a, a case study of, of showing that businesses can do good and do well simultaneously and that it's not a trade off. And I hope that we can become a brand that can have a tremendous impact on this goal of really eradicating extreme poverty in our lifetimes. I believe that's possible. But I believe we can't rely on government, clearly, alone to do that. We can't rely on nonprofits alone. Like, the, we need the private sector to step up. This last nearly a billion people on the planet that are living in poverty, it's it's unacceptable. And I think there's a role that all of us can play in, in solving that. Yeah.
0: Well, I have no doubt that you're going to make a huge dent. And I hope that you eradicate poverty. But I'm curious, what's next after extreme poverty, I should say, people living on less than a dollar ninety a day? Yeah. So there's
1: nearly a billion people living in extreme poverty, but there's still another billion or even two billion number of people that are living on the planet that still live in poverty. And so these might be people that aren't dying from malaria or dying from diarrhea, or maybe the, you know girls haven't stopped going to school when they start their period. But these are people that maybe are struggling with basic needs, whether it's eating enough meals a day or having basic shelter or having access to education. Beyond the primary education level, there's a huge amount of work that needs to happen there. I'm afraid to say that during our lives that this will not go away, but I believe that it's something that we can make tremendous strides in. And so, you know, once that bottom 10% is lifted beyond that extreme poverty level, there's a whole new challenge of getting people above just the general poverty line. And that includes, you know, here in the United States, there's just a lot of work that needs to happen globally. Well,
0: I applaud your efforts. I mean, even to this point, I've had a lot of folks on recently and some interviews that will come on after yours talking about this notion of capitalism and one which surprised me was phil kotler who's one of the fathers of marketing management he's a professor at kellogg school but he's an economist by training and he wrote this book recently called confronting capitalism i'm still working my way through it but the gist is that capitalism if left to its own devices i think and not people with values like you've described can be a force for evil a lot of times and just profit maximization So I applaud your efforts, your values-driven approach. I pray that there's more people out there like you.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I can't wait to hear some of these other podcasts. I'm still, honestly, I'm still learning. Still learning the language around how to communicate this and how to think through it myself. But uh, I think if all of us start making these efforts, man, what an amazing world we'll live in if all of us are making efforts in our own ways and following our own passions around giving back and thinking about others before
0: ourselves. Right. Well, and this is a podcast about marketing and there is no better way to build a better brand than to have a purpose for that brand, you know, and live it every day. And I I think you've given endless number of examples of how to do that. But I am curious because you're charting new territory, you know, are there brands or companies or causes that you think others should be taking notice of that you potentially watch or, or try to learn from?
1: Yeah. I mean, some of my favorite brands uh, you know, I've kind of talked a little bit about before, but you know, it's the Warby Parkers of the world, the Tom Shoes of the world, with their new impact strategy they've been focusing on. Even there's a really cool sock company called Bombas that I've gotten to know and I have a, the CEO has become a close friend, but they donate a pair of socks to someone that's homeless for every pair of socks they sell. I love seeing businesses that are willing to to do good and use their profits no matter how they're choosing to do it. They're focusing on, on an area that they're passionate about. So on the nonprofit side, I mean, there's a number of organizations that really inspire me. One called Educate Girls, which I am really passionate about in India. They're one of our grantees. They've done an amazing job of helping educate many, many girls throughout India and have done it in such a very, very efficient way. Another organization called Proximity Designs in Myanmar, which uh, might be one of the most innovative nonprofits I've ever heard of. They've had a tremendous impact in Myanmar in helping lift people out of poverty in, in a
0: sustainable way. That's awesome. Thanks for that. Last question, and it's a little self-serving to talk about marketing at this point, but you know, where do you see marketing going in the future?
1: You know, this is something I think about a lot. One of the things that's made Cotopaxi so unique, kind of in, in this cohort of, of outdoor brands, is the idea of using offline experiences. To connect consumers with the brand. I'm a believer that e-commerce 3.0 and marketing, as you think of e-commerce and consumer brands, it's going to start shifting from being online only or primarily online to being offline and online. And it's done through experiences. It's not putting up a billboard or running a newspaper ad. It's creating experiences that allow a touch point for consumers to experience the brand, to experience the brand values, that's where we've seen our brand really resonate is once people have gone and spent 24 hours adventuring in the outdoors, completing these different challenges, giving back in their community. And they're wearing one of our backpacks this, you know, during that 24 hours, like they connect with our brand. They know what we stand for and they become evangelists of what we're doing. And so I believe that a lot of consumer brands are trying to understand how do we create experiences and events that, that give us this touch point, this engagement with a customer that just doesn't exist online alone. So I think this is the way that we're going to start seeing a lot of marketing and branding happen is, you know, everything kind of shifted, was trying to shift online and people forgot like, hey, we're actually living in a non-digital world as well. Like we
0: kind of need both. Right, right. You need the connection as well as the product. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your story. It's a phenomenal one. Alan, thank you. It's been a pleasure
1: to get on the phone with you. And man, I, I can't wait to hear some of these other podcasts you talk about. Thanks for having
0: me today. Sure marketing today is brought to you by atomic atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business marketing brand and innovation our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise analysis and creativity check us out at atomic.com a-t-o-m-c-k Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.